It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. So did you hear that Carbondale lifted its mask mandate across the board? I did not hear that. Yeah, I was actually in the climbing gym. Or no, I walked into the climbing gym and Leah was like, guess what? I just got off the phone with Fabrizio and Carbondale has lifted its mask mandate. So you can wear a mask if you want, but you don't have to anymore. Damn. So you you climbed in the gym without a mask. I climbed in the gym without a mask. Wow. I know. That's pretty awesome. And I did a cartwheel. She said I was the only one who'd done a cartwheel so far. Down um, in Newcastle, we don't have a mask mandate. We never have. But we also don't have a climbing gym. So Yeah. I know. It's, it's really, honestly, in my entire life, other than the annoyance of forgetting a mask once in a while, which is annoying, but that's, you know, your own fucking fault. Yeah. The gym has been the only place where I've been like, yeah, this is a drag. Right. Like, I really don't care anywhere else yeah and i'm like in the grocery store i'm like if this keeps everybody from talking to me it's fantastic i love it it's just such a minor annoyance and the thing is is that in your joke about newcastle is interesting because it's like i mean 30 minutes away from here yeah we're lauren bobert country down there. yeah definitely (laughs) we are i mean technically we're in her county yeah but she lost garfield county her own county I think because of us up here. Yeah. Tipping the scales. But point being is that, I mean, in August, in July, in the highest points of COVID, you would get people in that city market down there without masks. And Steph and I were talking today that I don't think I've ever seen anyone in our city market here in Carbondale without a mask. Not a single time. Yeah. It's very political, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we were just down in Southern Utah and Forget it. It's the same thing. Like no one down there wears a mask. Dude, we drove across South Dakota in August and it was like, there was no COVID. Yeah. Just didn't exist. There was just like anyone like us who was driving through were like furtively glancing around and then at each other of like with this kind of like, we're with you kind of thing. Like you would definitely get these glances like, oh, thank God there's someone else wearing a mask. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I just feel like all of the liberals who are like, we need to trust the science and whatever, like that's like their battle cry. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's like not trusting the science at this point and taking their mask off now that it's okay to do so mm-hmm. officially, I mean, you just need to like get over it. So I'd understand the hesitancy to want to, you know, still align with your, you know, your progressive values by showing that you're wearing a mask or whatever, but got to trust the science and it's time to take it off. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say, aside from whether it's scientific or not, is that it felt fucking weird. Yeah. And, and to like, because I was warming up and some of the other people still had them on. And there was a moment with where everyone else I could see and there was like four people that had them on still. Because she said I, they encourage you if you haven't been vaccinated to keep your mask on. Right. Or, you know, again, there's all these other reasons like if you're immunocompromised right. or something. But I was just kind of like felt really self-conscious and I was like hoping that the next couple people that came in would take their damn masks off too. Because otherwise I was like, I mean, I, I've been watching movies. You may as well be wearing a MAGA hat. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> and I've been watching, I mean, like during the whole thing, like I would watch some movie where nobody was wearing a mask and kind of like, it would kind of freak me out a little yeah. bit, you know? So anyway, it's over here for the moment. So it's, do you know where it's not over? Um, in Japan. Well, yeah. Where they're going to try to have an Olympics. Maybe. I was going to try to segue into our show topic. Oh, sorry. So anyway, yeah. No, let's keep this in there. We, we want to uh, pull back the curtain for our listeners. No, <laughs> where? Way. Yeah. Let me try this again. Do you know where it, it isn't over, Chris? With anywhere they put in COVID restrictions that are just going to keep happening. That's right. There's like a COVID hangover in the national parks That's and right. state parks and climbing areas around the country. Yeah, so we're t- the today's topic is is um, registrations creeping up all over the place for climbers, and um, notably in Yosemite. In Yosemite for overnight big wall climbing. Overnight big wall climbing, yeah. So we're going to try to get into that a little bit. And honestly, you know, this is something that's kind of been in the works for a long time. A lot of these places have noted the increase in climbers, and you know, kind of been wondering what to do about that. I talked to Jesse McGahey for a thing I wrote for Nat Geo last year about, um, maybe it was two years ago now, about, you know, just the traffic on El Cap and the impact, basically because he and his fellow rangers hauled something like, you know, five tons of garbage off the summit and off the walls and stuff like that. They found, um, I think they wrapped down the nose a few years ago and cleaned garbage that had dated back to 1996. And they know that because of the, it was like a Coke commemorative bottle from the Olympics that year or something like that, <laughs> that was filled with like, you know, nasty feces or whatever. So yes, this has been in the works for a long time, but of course, a lot of climbers are, you know, have their hackles up about this, about the encroaching restrictions that are descending upon our free and, you know, libertarian sport. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What do you think about this? Well, I mean... The other thing about not only the increased amount of climbers, which is something that no one can deny, you know, not just statistically, but in your experience, everywhere there are climbers, everyone's witnessing more climbers each and every moment, each and every year. But also, and I think we talked about this, I guess it was maybe on a bonus episode about the bolting of the petroglyphs. Mm -hmm. Get your Patreon folks, listen to that one. But uh but yeah how it's how the the increased popularity has also brought in you know kind of a lot more variable in who's going climbing and I always felt in you know 30 years ago that a lot of climbers came into the sport already with a with a pretty good ethic about you know leave no trace and things like that although the base of El Cap even 30 years ago would maybe be evidence against mm-hmm. that when you used to just throw your shit off, like literally your shit and also your trash. But nevertheless, like we're getting more and more people that don't necessarily come in with a wilderness ethic and a leave no trace ethic. And I think that's another big concern that the parks have in terms of that. So if it's the same proportion of people who don't have the leave no trace ethic, it's just noticeably, you know, more, you can just see it more because there's 40 times more people out at the crags than there were 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the Yosemite facelift, which is a climber-driven uh, event that cleans up not, I mean, maybe even proportionally more 
sort of normal people stuff than climber stuff. But, you know, in the first few years of that, I think they were probably gathering garbage that had piled up for decades, you know, literally uh, for decades. But, you know, if they're, if nowadays, I mean, that original kind of pile has been very much reduced because I, I can remember in shit, you know, the early 90s looking behind El Cap Spire and literally seeing, you know, a garbage dump. And I looked last time I was up there to check it out and it's gone. It's clean. So, but, but, you know, my point being is that even though they cleaned up that initial pile, when they go back, there's a whole bunch more every year. Mm -hmm. So this idea that climbers don't do that or are in the quote, you know, I've seen all over the place that we police ourselves, that we, you know, can regulate ourselves just by our community. Jesse McGahey disagrees with that. Yeah. And I think the evidence that we all can gather anecdotally is that that's not 100% true. Yeah. And to be fair, it sounds like a lot of the garbage is, you know, ropes that are either abandoned at the summit, you know, whether you're a free climber wrapping down to, you know, work on the monster off with or whatever. You, you might stash your rope up there and then it, you know, then you don't come back the next weekend because you get tied up at work or something and then you forget about it and then you just, you know, take up golf and you don't ever climb again and you're, all your ropes are up at the summit. I think that has happened to at least <laughs> 20 people. <laughs> um, no, but ropes know. get abandoned but, all the yeah, time. Yeah, they just shit left and over. Stuff, yeah. And you're like, yeah, you're planning on getting that rope. And then finally, you know that it's trash. And so why bother, you know? Yeah. At first you were worried because you wanted it back to use it for climbing and now it's garbage. Right. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of the, you know, when there's talking about like tons and tons of garbage you're pulling off, it's like a lot of heavy ropes is, mm -hmm. is the pre predominant accounting of that weight. But then there's just also just lots of little stuff like little, you know, your tape gloves that you just fall out of your pocket and get wedged behind a crack somewhere on the on the wall or something like that. So it all just builds up and it's mm -hmm. just a lot of people, not to mention all the piss and all of that stuff as well. So so what are they actually asking for is well, what we had to kind of decipher from, you know, there was the original sort of announcement and then I think it got pretty distorted pretty fast what they're, what they're actually wanting, at least at this point in, in a place like Yosemite. It sounds like they want you to register four to 15 days in advance of your ascent. And they, that mean to register, you have to go into the ranger station and look someone in the eye and they need to like give you the spiel on what isn't, isn't okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's basically it. I'm, I'm not sure there's probably other, but do you have to make, can you, do you make a reservation like online or is it all in person is what I couldn't gather actually. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not entirely. I know at some that. point you have to pick the permit up, yeah. which puts you in front of a person. Right. And it involves restricting some of your camping in the park as well. But, uh, but yeah, I don't, and I don't see that there's a limit at the moment. There's just simply this wanting to have this interface with you about your big wall climb and give you a time frame to do it if you're going to spend the night. So from what I gather from the internet discussion about this, there's kind of two camps, which is one is like, this isn't really that big a deal. You know, they're free permits. It doesn't sound like there's a cap on them, at least yet. Um, it's more just a matter of going through the formality of, you know, shaking a ranger's hand before you go climb El Cap. 
And, you know, there's a few kind of, it seems like minor restrictions in terms of, you know, decide the night before, oh, I'm going to go climb El Cap. So I think that's kind of like out, which probably annoys a lot of people. But for days in advance, you need to, you can say, oh, I want to climb El Cap. Well, Um, it's, it's, you can't decide you're going to climb a route where you're going to spend the night. Right. So all the one day ascents, all the speed ascents, all that, you know, the, the headline was something about free solo, need a permit. (laughs) So that's not actually accurate because Alex was only up there for three and a half hours. So all that stuff is wide open. So it's really about whether you're going to spend the night. Right. And with that in mind. Does that mean in a day ascents or require permits? Like if you're there for 24 hours? Probably not, I would say. So as long as you don't go to sleep, you don't need a permit. Yeah, or get out your bivy sack. Okay. Yeah. I think as long as you, if you sleep, um, if you sleep prone, then you're, you need a permit. If you sleep sitting up in, in, in slings, if you get your, if you get your portal edge out, you need a permit. Yeah. If you just fall asleep sitting up, no problem. With one eye open? Yeah. You're fine. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. This is obviously a hotbed for information and not conspiracy theories about what's going on in Yosemite. Well, my point was going to be is that unless you're a SAR person, in which case you probably have an inside track anyway, it would be pretty unusual for somebody sitting around, you know, after five o'clock to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to start a, suddenly I feel like starting a big wall in the morning before whatever the office opens that's going to involve multiple nights. Right. So this is a, a would be a weird circumstance where you couldn't, you know, along with your trip to the store to get some, you know, SpaghettiOs, you couldn't stop by and get your permit as right. well. Like it would have to be a real, very spontaneous overnight kind of thing because usually people are like, okay, I got to spend the day now, like getting my stuff together to spend the night. I guess I could see as an instance, if you're like a, lived in San Francisco and you, you know, were a work a day kind of guy mm-hmm. and- um, you know, you wanted to climb a route over the weekend. True. You know, you roll into the valley late Friday night, you get up at four in the morning and then do a wall you right. know, over, in, you know, top out Sunday night. Yeah, maybe, for sure. Maybe that would be a barrier or a for some of those people. To that. Yeah. yeah. Are you worried about the permit, uh, the descendants of permits in climbing in general? Or is there anything that you're concerned Absolutely. about? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's, it's honestly, I mean, I can have I can have some very logical reasoning and feelings about why some of this is probably in the long run good and you know inevitable. But I still think that we as climbers, our tradition and you know our sort of modus operandi is to push back against this stuff, and we should push back against it. Yeah. I think that we should push back as far as is ignoring it as well. I think civil disobedience is a long tradition in climbing with these sorts of things. And I think it's great. Do it. Go for it. Don't, you know, I I just feel like it's part of the push and pull. We can't just roll over and let it happen. Yeah. Personally. It's this, um, you know, it's a slippery slope thing, you know, and I hate those arguments because they're kind of all speculative. Um, but the, but that's really what this is. It's like, if you really think that this is where the permit system is going to end and, you know, it's not going to get any more draconian than, you know, the mild inconvenience of having to go into a ranger's office to pick up your piece of paper that you can get for free at mm-hmm. any time you want without a cap, clearly you'd be a fool to think that. Like, 
this is the start of more regulations in climbing. And I could see where it's going to go is, you know, caps on the number of people can be allowed in the park at any given time um, or up on a route at any given time. And um, what I worry about with that more than anything, I mean, on the one hand, for the people who get to experience being up on the wall with fewer crowds than you would have otherwise, that's going to mm-hmm. be great for mm-hmm. them. I am just concerned about the way that the system will be, you know, manipulated or gamed or just kind of selective in, a, in an un, unfair way. I just, you know, one thing that comes to mind is I ha- I actually know a climber who I won't mention, who's a coder in Silicon Valley, who wrote a code to basically, like he wrote this algorithm to basically get himself, guarantee himself camping sites in Yosemite throughout the year by any time the, you know, the per, the the thing comes up on the website to book a site, he's already booked it like through this algorithm, you know? Yeah. It's like the thing that where the stock trades happen, like in milliseconds. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, he's a smart guy who figured that out and that's going to happen with this too. I mean, if, that so you can just see like how, you know, like if, if you're the kind of person who like goes on to Ticketmaster hoping to get your band, your favorite mm-hmm, band's tickets mm-hmm. and you're always never able to do it and you have to like bootleg them at the concert. Right. You're, you're going to be that person in line, like, trying to buy permits and at the at the gates of yosemite well and that's the thing is that if it if it starts to cost money and it's also limited so you know whatever july 5th you there's only four permits available is that the thing that's happened with the with the camping and i'm glad you brought that up is that you know it becomes almost this economic thing because i because people will book the camping whether they think they're going to use it or not because right. what's you know what's 250 bucks to somebody that you know has more money than they know what to do with right and so i think a lot of those camping reservations things fill up with people that never use them yes and yes you can you know in a lot of places you can be there on the night and pick up those sites that no one ever shows up for but that's you know that's really super inconvenient yeah you have to wait till 10 o'clock or whatever to know and so i think it you know it yeah the system is once again, sort of gained by economics as well, mm-hmm. is that those people don't have any problem with that. Like, totally. oh, we might go to Yosemite, so let's grab these sites, and if we don't use them, we don't use them. I don't care, you know. And so, you know, and so much of the climbing world is about this, you know, the opposite of that, the spontaneity wanting to show up and, and do what you want to do, that, again, I just think it needs to be kind of pushed back against. And this isn't the only place where this has happened. We've We've, um, we got an email from a reader who let us know about some other places, uh, Rocky mountain park, um, has permits. And these are again, like remnants of COVID restrictions that were designed to uh, keep fewer people in the park or let fewer people into the park. Um, and you know, the managers were just like, Hey, this is kind of sweet. Let's keep it like this. And, um, and I don't, I, I mean, I didn't research what exactly he's talking about, Yeah. but one thing is that overnight permits have always been necessary Yes. in the park. And that, and, and just to jump back real quick, um, to the Yosemite thing, that is a kind of an, an interesting wrinkle in this is that above a certain level on El Cap, a few hundred feet, it's considered wilderness which mm-hmm. is part of why like bolting with a power drill is banned up there and things like that. And we are the only 
user group that can go and spend the night in the wilderness without a permit. Mm -hmm. So there is this exceptional thing about the climbers that, you know, everybody else has always had to deal with. And in Rocky Mountain National Park, it, I mean, I, when I guided there in the, in the nineties, you had to have a permit to spend the night. So if you were going to do a day climb, there was no registration, but if you were going to bivy, you had to, uh, you had to get a permit already. So, and the reason that they probably never got the permit system going for El Cap is because how the fuck are they going to check it or mm -hmm. regulate it? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, I wonder what's really changed. Like I'm, right. I'm skeptical that even with this permit system that, if you were to go climb El Cap without a permit, that you would ever get caught. Right. I kind of doubt that. Well, in some ways, the impetus is to, is about the user experience, you know, and like looking at um, the diamond, for example, in Rocky Mountain National Park, one way to do that is to bivy. And there's only, you know, in the talus field, there's sort of several known kind of flat spots. And then also the experience on the wall. So I think, there with that a lot of times it, it was environmental damage too because if you go up there and all the spots are taken then you make a new spot which i think is a big concern of right. all land managers and and happens in indian creek for example all the time but the other thing was about user experience like there was this this kind of um you know honorable idea that hey you know there's already five parties up there we just we don't need 10 parties up there because then everybody's on top of each other and it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's nefarious reasons to do this, you know, that are pointed out, like they're just trying to make more money or something or limit our access. But in some ways, and, and I thought about that with El Cap too, like in some ways, the fact that you know, the route is going to be relatively clear for you is actually, you know, if it could be done right, it would be a positive thing because that's a big concern now is that you walk up with your shit and drop it there and you're behind four other parties that are getting ready to go. Well, that so, was one I mean, of the arguments yeah. that was against the permit system to begin with is that the traffic is so self-regulating mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. Like you, there's only so many parties who can go up the nose at a time. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you look up the wall and you can see everyone on the wall, you know, from the, uh, from the meadow, um, you know, you're not going to go up the nose if you see 30, right. party of 30 up there. So Yeah, and it's interesting because this kind of is about the nose free rider. Yes. South, free, free rider South Day, either as a free route or as an aid route, and maybe Zodiac. Yeah. And after that, like, it really declines in how many people yeah, are that's on basically, any given It's basically route. like two or three routes. Yeah, 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 for sure, which is interesting because maybe they could limit it to that, but... um. But anyway, back back to the Ragman National Park. I'm not sure the details of it, but the res the point is is the reservation systems came in as this COVID thing, and now COVID's basically ending. I mean, Colorado's going to end its end its entire mask mandate in a week or so, but the the reservation systems aren't going away. Mount Evans is another one, and they were talking about Eldo as well. Yeah, and Eldorado Canyon. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I think that we should be concerned by that. And one of the things that was pointed out as well was just the the seeming silence or deafening silence from groups like the Access Fund, which, you know, ostensibly are, you know, in another world might be upset by these new regulations and restrictions of access. Mm -hmm. But um, their silence seemed to suggest that they were fully on board with this. There's a sentence in their statement about them not being comfortable with parts of this permitting system in Yosemite. Yeah. 
And I don't know where they are with the other ones. I haven't seen anything. What um, do you think explains that? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe there's a little bit of gun shyness because of the COVID thing. And, and maybe we'll hear more from them when that's not such an issue. Um, because it's like you said about the politics at the beginning of this. Like, the access fund has to ride the cautious part of the COVID thing because they're on that side of it at this point. And so maybe it's just too early to kind of figure out. But at the same time, I think they are probably also a bit conflicted about what their mission is because a lot of, you know, one of their missions in their name is access, but then the other one is about protecting our climbing areas. So I think they probably feel the same way that, yeah, this, we are at a point right now where the crowds are jacking up our climbing areas. You know, because it's also one thing we didn't mention is that a lot of this isn't in any sort of like concrete form, but Indian Creek is, is, you know, it's coming and, and there's been meetings with, you know, the access fund and the friends of Indian Creek and the dugout ranch, which is there, which is owned by the, the, um, nature conservancy, but is still run by the original owners, the reds and these people, the reds, you know, as a family have seen it go from, you know, Jimmy Dunn and, and Earl Wiggins down there and Ed Webster to what it is today. So they've witnessed the entire change, this family, you know, yeah. this generations, three generations of people. And so, you know, and so it's, it's coming. There's a place where I've also witnessed the change. I always say it's like the, the one place where I've climbed the longest consistently. You know, a lot of people say, well, I climbed there back then, but they haven't been there in 20 years. I've climbed there almost every year, you know, for, or pretty close to every year for 30 years. So it's, it's a time lapse that I have in my brain and it's astounding. And it, and it's funny to see people talk about it when these regulations are coming in and, and have this whole blank period in their history when, when they talk about it, even though they've been climbing there for like five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the big things that happened there with regulation is that the camping got regulated and some of these places that were just sprawling, you know, park your, your car. Back then it was, you know, your Tacoma. Actually, it wasn't a Tacoma. It was a pickup. Toyota was original. They were just called pickups. But, you know, put it wherever you want. And, and this is the spot, you know, the Super Bowl and what's now called Creek Pasture, which I always tell the funny story is that we used to call the Creek Pasture the secret spot which is absurd because it's the most popular camping down there. But to us, it, it was too far away because you had to kind of drive out of the main part of Indian Creek. And there was all these places in inside of the main part. Yeah. You could camp in Donnelly Canyon. You could camp uh, right after, on the turnout to the Bridger Jacks. Yeah. There was these other two campgrounds that are gone. With all those like flat... Um Thinking of Slick like Rock. Slick Rock, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Slick there's Rock, other spots yeah. too within that, or like right around the the turn for Beef Basin, which we're getting you know in the nitty gritty about Indian Creek. But they're they're they we got kicked out, yeah. Because what happens is is you know there's a few spots, and then somebody shows up and those are full, and they just make a new spot, and they just make a new spot, and pretty soon it's a dust bowl. Mm-hmm. And the truth is is that, and I was part of the friends of Indian Creek when the improvements on Creek pasture started to get placed, you know, and, and the friends of Indian Creek, I think maybe help pay for the toilets up there, but they don't pay for the, for the cleaning of them or anything. Mm-hmm. And to me, the result now is a better user experience mm-hmm. because they shut down a bunch of sites in there. 
they contain the sites because one thing that would happen too is the you know where there was a a piece of dirt that fit two or three cars every year you know became like a baseball diamond sized death zone for the plants because everybody you know now your four friends are there and you need another tent site and another place to park their car and and so the fact that they regulated it to me has improved it yeah but you say regulated and it's still nothing compared to what like the Yosemite experience yeah, is. Right. And so, I mean, when I first started climbing, I think I went to, first went to Yosemite in 2001. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time there at that time because I thought that was like the best place to be as a climber. And then once I started kind of going off into, you know, places like the creek and other random zones where there was no, you, there was no standing in line to get your Camp 4 tags. There was no, you know, I don't know, just like infrastructure around everything. It it just felt like amazing to have that kind of freedom. And that's what I loved about that. I was like, well, I'm not going back to Yosemite because I just felt like that was like kind of the the lamest part of the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that, you know, when you say infrastructure around the creek is better now, yes, it's great now, but imagine if it's like Yosemite, it's, that would be really lame. Totally. And, and the, yeah. you know, and the thing about the Indian Creek is I've always called it the last great free area. Yeah. And that changed. Although the, the dispersed camping is still allowed. And so if you don't want to be in that camp, you can go to these, you know, these other places. But the thing is, is that I'm watching the, you know, I know these spots that used to be this like tucked away, like one or two car thing are, are the same thing. Now right. they're this like baseball diamond sized blown out spot because the problem with the climbers is that we sort of crow about this solitary experience we want, but we don't really want that. Mm -hmm. We want a solitary experience with our inner circle, 19 friends. After that, we don't want your 19 friends here too. Right. But that it's, and it's, so it's kind of funny. and, And so I, you know, part of me is on that side of like, yeah, you know, Jesse's right. Like we don't, we don't limit ourselves. We don't, you know, go to pull off and say to ourselves, no, I don't want to ruin this, this, you know, these plants that are here. We're just like, fuck it. We'll just park our car here. No one's going to care. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and there's like a million examples of that. And that's the problem is it's not this wholesale, you know, we're not a mining company strip mining something, but we're like killing it, you know, the death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. And I've seen that in the creek. And I don't like the the regulation, and it's still like this great free area, and so I understand the pushback against it. But if I'm being honest, intellectually honest, I see how we abuse it, and some of these things put a stop to our abuse. That's all. And I, and if I'm not willing to admit that, then I'm not going to have an honest conversation about it. Yeah, just to bring this back around to what we started talking about in this, I'm going to try to do this. It might not work, but... Um you're making me think about the type of person or personality that's required to know when enough is enough or like walking that fine line you just articulated mm-hmm. between, you know, regulation and too much regulation. When we're thinking about Yosemite and the permit system there, at what point are, is it going to be a virtuous thing to say, no, we're not, we're not just going to walk into your office anymore and like do this whole meet and greet you know, and then pay you 30 bucks and then do this online thing. And then, you know, at some point there might be a time where it's like, that's the righteous move. I worry about the, 
the the type of people who let's say would or be reluctant to take off their masks in polite society that right. kind of personality being part of the climbing community at that point and not and just going along with the permits because it's easy to do that too oh you want me to keep wearing a mask okay yes sir yes sir i will oh you want me to do all these you know restrictions uh, around climbing yes sir um i don't know what i'm i'm just like throwing that out there right. that there there's like some threshold beyond that where I don't know. The righteous people need to say that enough is enough. And I don't think that we're there yet with the Yosemite permit thing. But I could see, again, on that slippery slope that one day we might get there and it might be might be time to, you know, (laughs) like take the mask off and and say that we're not going to have, you know, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Um, Interestingly, uh, one user group has has had their permits removed from Yosemite. Yeah, which is kind of wild. Which is crazy, yeah. But, so yeah. we're you know we're in this like draconian stage for climbing, but the um, just this year, as a filmmaker or photographer, you don't have to get a permit to shoot commercial videos in the park anymore. I guess this was uh, handed down by a court ruling that basically you know made it a free speech issue. Like YouTuber YouTube influencers need their free speech to be able to go into the park and you know shoot themselves like. Feeding Most, squirrels or whatever. Mostly naked. <laughs> yeah. Feeling, feeding squirrels. Yeah. yeah. Just a so, little side boob. So the freedom is strong for, for if you're a YouTube influencer. Yeah, if you're a YouTube yeah. influencer, then why not just... Yeah, that's the thing is you don't need a permit to climb El Cap if you can convince them you're a YouTube <laughs> influencer. So you're good to go there. So if you film yourself sleeping on the wall, then you're okay. It's interesting because I saw a thread. Uh, Renan Ostrick posted a thread about the Indian Creek thing. And that was actually a very huge complaint was that the reason the Indian Creek is overcrowded is because of influencers. Right. That's a very strongly held belief is that if we just didn't make, you know, post pictures about it, no one would know about it and there would be hardly anybody there. How many people would be on El Cap right now if if there was no such thing as an influencer? I'd say it'd be like half. You think so? Yeah, it would solve all the problems. <laughs> the podcasters are fucking it up. <laughs> like all we do is talk about climbing (laughs) john branch is a pulitzer prize winning sports journalist at the new york times he is the author of the last cowboys and boy on ice and he is the journalist who made the dawn wall the dawn wall his new book is side country Tales of Death and Life from the Backroads of Sports. I just got a, uh, a text from Everest Basecamp yesterday, the night before. Okay. Sitting there, and a Facebook message came through from a guy named uh, Dawa Sherpa, who helped us with the story I wrote about the climbers in India who's, who died on Everest a few years ago. And story I wrote about trying to bring their bodies home mm-hmm. and Dawa was one of the crew that went and got those bodies and shot the footage for us which was incredible footage kind of at the end of the season of bringing bodies of finding the bodies and then bringing them down and so he texted me out of the blue two nights ago and said hey how, how are you sir he speaks very formally and I said <laughs> I'm good Dawa what's up like I wasn't sure it was really him and uh, he said well I'm here at Everest base camp and we're sitting around watching the Dawn Wall, and I saw you, and I thought I would say hello. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, on, that's what people do at Everspace Campus, watch the Dawn Wall. <laughs> they probably have a large uh, IMAX screen there now <laughs> When the well. disco tech is closed, they have to do something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. I, I can picture like this drive-up theater kind of thing, everybody sitting around like a lawn chairs. Well, um, I don't know how to get into this, John, but you're such an interesting person to me. You're also a big inspiration and, and hero as well of mine. But, um, you know, I'd say over the last decade, you've really had a very prominent hand in shaping the discourse around how adventure sports are discussed and, you know, spoken about. And you've uh, played a hand in just explaining them to the mainstream, given your position at the at the New York Times maybe beginning with snowfall, but correct me if I'm wrong with that, but snowfall being your, your story about the avalanche and Stevens pass in Washington that I think won you a Pulitzer, but I'm not quite sure what your background is as a climber, skier, adventurer yourself. So maybe you could just, I'd love to just know what your, what, what your relationship is to these sports and how you started writing about them. Thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. The, um, the background is that I don't have a huge background in them. I grew up in Colorado, in Golden, Colorado. Dad was a, uh, an employee of Coors Beer. And so I grew up at the foot of the Rockies, weekend skier, um, all through my winters growing up. Boy Scout, Eagle Scout, a little rappelling, a little bit of climbing, uh, very little. A lot of camping, a lot of hiking kinds of things. So I'm I'm, you know, no rookie to the outdoors, but certainly the things I write about are way beyond the scope of what I would ever imagine doing. So I'm very much an armchair kind of writer, but I think I bring just enough background to sort of occasionally know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Chris and I have touched on this topic on this podcast a number of times before about um, just the degree of experience that seems to be requisite to being able to speak from a position of authority. And um, we often bring that up in terms of criticizing writers or stories that we read that we don't actually don't like. And that's sort of the default, (laughs) you know, uh, or I guess that's the the thing that we blame for why the, the writing is falling short, but you're the, in some ways, the complete opposite of that. So I'd, I'm just curious to, as a writer, to know the process. Or like, how are you able to write about stuff that you don't know uh, intimately from firsthand experience? Yeah, this is the challenge, and it's what I love doing. I um, I have a very short attention span, and maybe I'm a little bit different than a lot of journalists in that I love to write about things that I really don't know anything about. Um, it's a selfish thing. It's a it's because I want to learn about things too. I'm trying to figure out how to make my life more interesting. And so it's it's interesting to me to dive into worlds that are foreign to me or in, into people that I don't know very well. And the challenge basically is to, when you come across a story, to learn as much as possible, to try to talk to all the right people, and then to write a story that you can basically fake all those people into, know, into thinking that you know what you're talking about. Um, and then you move on to the next story. And it's, you know, a little bit anxiety ridden. I know that there are going to be times when I write things that people who know that world better than I ever will, will say, wait a second. Um, And I have to remember, and I do remember that the audience is usually not those people. It's never those people. The audience is the grandmother on the Upper East Side. It's my mother. Um, It's people in um, Hong Kong. It's people around the world that don't know anything about climbing or skateboarding or surfing or whatever the story might be. And, you know, the, the balance is trying to figure out how to write a story that both educates those people for whom these worlds are completely foreign and also to 
to keep their credibility alive for the people who do know those worlds and read it and be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's dumbed down a little bit, but it's, it's the right thing and it's, and it's accurate and it's fair and it's the right story for this time. That's the balance I'm always trying to find. I've always been curious about just journalists in general, you know, someone like you who, who obviously gets assignments, but also can choose your stories and choose what you sort of grab hold of. First of all, like just in general, how folks decide about that, because it seems to be, you know, there's an instinct with those that are good at it to to be able to sort of instantly maybe see the kind of greater ramifications of something that just happened or the possible threads of meaning that you could you could go to, even though everybody else is just not noticing that yet, you know, and speaking specifically about the Dawn Wall, um, which is a story that for us climbers, similar things, maybe not quite as epic, but similar things have happened over and over again for 50 years and no one's noticed but us. And this could have been that same story where at the end of it, you know, the real rock comes out and all the climbers praise this this amazing thing that they did and that was the end of it. Somehow you saw this thing pretty early in the whole process and decided that you you saw something there. Um, can you sort of talk about that, not just moment, but, you know, the mechanics of what goes on in your brain when something like that just starts yelling at you, we need, I need to talk about this more. <laughs> yeah, the, um, I'll, I'll talk broadly about this because it comes up a lot that people will pitch a story or something will come up in one of these worlds and we'll use climbing as, as an example. And I know that I'm going to write what, maybe one climbing story a year, if that, maybe a couple. Um, I know the Times might run four or five climbing stories a year. There's no quota. Um, but when a story comes up, I want to make sure that it's the right story, that folks like you say, oh, good, the Times picked the right thing here. And so part of my job is to kind of weed through some of these things that are popping up here and there and trying to take a temperature of, is this the right story in this world? You know, is this what climbers are talking about? Or is this story going to come out and have people like you say, what is the Times doing? And I know we've done that before. Um, <laughs> I try not to be that person as much as possible. But if there's an idea that comes up, I will pass it by people that I know in these various worlds and say, is this what you guys are talking about? Is this like legit or am I misreading this? And then it just becomes this kind of innate journalism sense, I guess, where you just hear a story and kind of go, there's something really cool here. And more and more, it's, you know, is there something cool visually here? Um, the stories I like to write tend to be, I like to think, very human sorts of stories. Is there, are there interesting characters in the midst of this? And that came up with the Don Wall, certainly. Um, I knew not a lot. I've never met Tommy Caldwell. I had never met Kevin Jorgensen. Um, I just knew vaguely about this quest of theirs. And, and the Times had written about it four years earlier. Um, and so it was in the back of my head. And somehow I knew at the end of that year, I guess at the end of 2014 in December, that they were on the wall. It's probably from one of you guys or, you know, somewhere I saw a mention of it. And so my editor and I talked about it. And I remember I came back from the Rose Bowl on January 1st, came back to the Bay Area and was trading messages with my editor saying, you know, what do you think about the Dawn Wall? You know, these guys are up on the wall. And I'll, I'll step back and say my usual hunch is not to write stories before they actually happen. You know, we get a lot of pitches from people saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to climb this or I'm going to walk on my hands across America or I'm going to kayak across the Pacific. And I say, great, tell me when you get there. It might be a great story. 
And so I don't like to just promote people's efforts. I'd rather, I'd rather not be first and rather write about it epically at the end. Um, but these guys had been doing this for a long time. Tommy Caldwell was certainly legitimate. The quest was legitimate. And I knew it was a, a big deal in the climbing world. And so when I texted my editor that night, um, I said, yeah, I can go up to Yosemite and just sort of see what's going on. I know it's not, they're not going to finish anytime soon, um, but it looks like they have a big weather window. This, you know, let's see what happens. And here's what happened it was January 2nd, when I got home that night from the Rose Bowl, I um, was just playing on my phone, looking at social media, trying to catch up on what was going on. What had I missed? Where were they on the wall? What were people like you guys saying? You know, whatever blogs I could find. And I saw that, that Kevin had tweeted and I didn't follow Kevin on Twitter, but then I followed him on Twitter. And about a minute later, I got a notification. He followed me back. <laughs> I thought, wait a second. He's on the wall. Like, what's he doing on Twitter? <laughs> like, do they have cell? Like, it totally threw me off. And so I sent him a note, and I, um, I wrote it down, actually. I wrote it down because I hadn't looked at it since 2015. Because I was like, I wonder if this conversation is still in my phone. 8.02 p.m., I wrote, congrats on the push so far and continued good vibes. NYT is quite interested in a story ASAP. What's your hoped for schedule? Cheers. And he replied with basically saying, well, we're going to be here a few days. A lot could change, but we'll definitely be up here for another week. And I said, great, I'm going to drive up to Yosemite tomorrow. And we talked about, can I just give you guys a call? And so I got to Yosemite the next day and I was trying to figure out where I was going to call them from um, and where I could be, where I could record it and take notes and where they had good cell service in the valley and I parked myself next to um, the Yosemite Lodge the old lodge there and every time I've been to Yosemite since and I'm like there's the parking spot where I was talking to those guys and I called them clear as as a bell I had no idea there was such good cell reception there and what's funny about that conversation is that at the beginning of the Dawnwall movie that's the phone call where my goofy little voice says, hi guys, it's John Branch from the New York Times. <laughs> How's it going up there? Um, I had no idea it was going to be part of movie history. And uh, yes, that's where it all started. Like most stories, it just sort of starts organically. We had no big vision for it. It was just like, just go to Yosemite and see what's going on. Were you surprised with how much attention that story received and how it kind of became this big global phenomenon? Or is that just... Yes. Is that just... Uh, a, a normal day in the week of John Branch in the life of John Branch. <laughs> no, that was not a normal week in the in the life of John Branch. Um, I never or rarely try to guess like how things are going to resonate, and I certainly had no idea on this one. I thought it was just a climbing story, and that was cool. Again, selfishly, I'm going to go spend a couple of days in Yosemite talking to two of the world's great climbers doing this epic thing. Like, who's feeling sorry for me? Um, I've got the coolest job in the world. And so I wrote that first story really quickly, and unbeknownst to me, editors in New York, I guess, were smitten by the idea, and they put it on the front page. And the next day, I, I got a call or emails or whatever saying, we love this story, and we want more of this. How long are these guys going to be up there? We have so many questions, and it's you know very kind of New York-centric kinds of questions, like Midtown Manhattan kinds of questions, like, wow, who are these guys? And And... How are they doing this? And what's the what exactly uh, is the technique? And where do they sleep? And how do they go to the bathroom? And so, th the next day was like, well, let's get these questions answered, I guess. And somehow, and I went back and looked at the story, and there were hundreds and hundreds of comments of people that were just like dazzled by this notion. I don't know if we just hit the timing right, if it was a slow news day, but that first story captured enough attention that we said, let's just 
do more. And again, I'm not that familiar with these worlds, right? So, or this world. So I'm like, well, I'm not the one really to answer these questions. So I kind of got lucky as I reached out to Alex Honnold and I reached out to Beth Rodden, knowing I was going to be doing stories on Tommy anyway, and said, would you guys mind answering like reader questions? And so they did kind of Q and A's with us and I was passing them reader questions and they would email me back. And our graphics team did this really epic um, digital illustration of, of El Cap. And so just, it kind of like built momentum. And I went off knowing that these guys were going to be up there for a, a week or more and thought, well, we need to do some sort of profile of Tommy. We need to do some sort of profile of Kevin, who actually lives not too far from me. So I was bouncing back and forth between Santa Rosa and Yosemite, trying to keep tabs of how long they're going to be. And then when Kevin got stuck on, on number 15, I think it was, um, the whole thing slowed down. It became basically a news story and became just a, let's just treat this almost like a, a football game. What's happening next? And uh, I had no idea it was going to be a big deal. I'm shocked by it still. It's fascinating to me that the climb and the story both hinged on a lot of luck. And, you know, if after you had shown up and done those first few things and you know, the, the New York Times had run the stuff. If a big storm had come and, and wiped them out and ended the ascent for the year, that would have been, you know, it would have just been a little footnote that there was this weird curiosity for the week that week. But the the climb both unfolded in this really amazing and magical way, which then seems to me, you know, just became one more or one element after another that makes a good story. The, you know, the meeting the challenge of Kevin and the loyal guy waiting for him on the wall. And like, and then finally after what, like 17 or 18 days, them topping out in this incredibly emotional moment. I mean, that was just like, you know, manna from heaven as far as like stories go. As well as, as you know, the, the great, you know, resulting in one of the greatest sense of all time when it could have been, just year seven of Tommy's endless quest, you know, put it, put the stuff away and come back next year kind of thing. Right. Uh, better to be lucky than good. And so I'm glad I happened to be in the right place at the right <laughs> yeah. time. A million things could have gone wrong. I could have decided after the, after the Rose Bowl to stick around and do a story on whoever played that year. Um, you know, a USC story for a few <laughs> days and missed the whole thing. i like, oh, well, it looks like they got to the top. We'll write a quick little news story about that maybe. Yeah, really fortunate and, and glad that it resonated with people and um, it's it's not my greatest work because it was done very quickly, usually with bad Wi-Fi from Yosemite Valley Lodge or whatever, but um, I'm, I'm glad that it seemed to resonate and it's, you know, as a lot of things are with me, it's selfishly, it was a, a ton of fun to do. Um, you know, let's, let's be honest, it's all about me and it's, um, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's great memories for me. And I was just glad to be, be a, a tiny, tiny little fly in the wall as these guys are doing something so epic. And, and as we were talking about before, I'm glad that what sort of blew up into something big was something legitimate. You know, I would have felt really weird about this if this was something where people in the climbing world would be like, really, New York Times, this is what you decided to, to blow up, or this is what you really put a lot of resources into. It's sometimes better to be lucky than, than good. There's just an incredible amount of serendipity with the whole story in terms of, I mean, you have to wonder if Kevin would have had the world not been watching him on pitch 15, you know, for that whole week, if he would have just thrown in the towel early and maybe just, you know, decided to come back at a later year or something like that. And so the, the way the story blew up also in some way made the climb happen in some weird way. There's also the serendipity of just the fact that you did such a good job of describing 
climbing in a way to people that was true to the sport. You weren't just, you know, exaggerating risks and, you know, there was no hyperbole around it. And there was just a very honest uh, attempt to try to understand the nuances of what pitches are and, and explaining that to a general audience, but doing it in a way that just, you know, kept the focus on, on the humanity and the people too. And it was interesting for me because I was writing about that for National Geographic at the time. And I, that was sort of a breakthrough for me in my career as a writer. And I had come from the opposite end of the spectrum, being a very niche writer who had, you know, been writing about climbing for 15 years. And this was an exercise in pairing away all of the the geeky climbing details that I are my normal go-tos or just being able to speak in, in jargon without, you know, second guessing that. And it really forced me to focus on what is, what is important about our sport. It was clarifying in a way to just, you don't actually need to understand every single little detail about how climbing works to understand something that is like very true about it. And it's about the people and it's about how they're pushing themselves and so forth. And I don't know. So there was like kind of a, for me personally, there was also this like interesting experience of learning to write for a mainstream audience in a way that just clarified what, what makes climbing great that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because this is kind of the world that I live in, which is sort of being the dumb guy coming from the outside and trying to pretend like I know what I'm talking about, or at least, you know, getting to a point where I feel like I can write this comfortably and not embarrass myself or the, or the New York times. And it comes up with climbing a lot. I remember having conversations with my editor about, can we use the word carabiner? Do people know what a carabiner is? I'm like, of course people know what a carabiner is. Like, I don't think people know what a carabiner is. I'm like, well, then we'll say carabiner, which is an old shape. You know what? We'll do like a little parenthetical of what it is. And Snap I think link. in the end we didn't, yeah, at the end we basically <laughs> said they were clipped in. Like we just yeah. punted the hole, I think. Right. Because um, that and, kind and, of, um, if you get too, if you do too many of those parentheticals, the piece gets dragged down to the ground pretty quickly and then nobody can make, make it through the story. And, and it's funny because these stories, I've only really read through them again for the first time in five years because of this book, because they're in the book and I had to read through them, make sure I didn't screw up anything too badly that, you know, needed to be clarified or something. But a lot of these stories, because they were every day or every couple of days, we can't assume that the people who are reading today read the three stories before. So there's a lot of going back, All right. um, having to explain the process of what they're doing, what El Cap is. If you read like the third or fourth story, you're like, okay, if you read them in, in a row, you're yeah. like, okay, we get what they're doing here, but it's because you don't know where people are, are going to enter the story. And you know, that it's, it's a world that I'm used to in that most of what I write about are worlds that are not really familiar to, I know a lot of the readers. So I don't mind being that dumb guy kind of asking the dumb questions and, and asking people who know the world, explain this to me. You know, why do you guys do this? Which I think helps with the mainstream audience and maybe helps like connect some sometimes complicated stories or niche worlds to more of a mainstream audience. But there is always kind of this push and pull with this because I want these stories to read legitimately too and not just feel like I'm writing this for children or something. And you think about it, like we cover football, for example, we cover football and, and, or let's say baseball. And in the midst of our baseball reporting, we don't say, you know, they, they turn a double play, which is when two outs are made on the same batted ball. We just say it's a double play. We say it's a home run. 
But if we were to write about cricket or something, we might say, we got to explain a couple of these things here because we can't assume our audience knows this. So when you're talking about climbing, it's a lot it like that. Explain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so climbing, it's like a lot of that. So I'm sure people who know climbing far better than I ever will, um, will sometimes read things I've written and be like, dude, you, you know, we're not in first grade here, but I have to remember that I need my mom to understand this. Well, it's funny because us climbers, it's almost like we like to hold this knowledge that, that other people don't have. And we, of course, like to pile on when they screw it up. And, you know, you, I'm sure, are aware of the, the running hands and feet jokes that go through all of climbing. Because, most more actually because of Honold than anybody. But, um, but then your writing and, and the whole thing through the Donwell caused me to kind of do the thought experiments of like, because the free climbing, free soloing thing is the, one of the other great things. But then I'm like, well, how do you exactly explain free climbing? I was like pitching all this stuff or keeping in touch with this sports podcast that I really like called Hang Up and Listen over at Slate. And, uh, you know, kind of like keeping them informed with the idea that they would say, hey, why don't you come on the show? And then it turns out that Andrew got called to come on the show. Um, <laughs> I've never even heard this podcast. Which I'll admit sort of pissed me off. But... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but I had this thing in my head. Okay, so how do you explain pitches and what it means for for why what is what is Kevin actually trying to do that's so important about getting across this this one pitch and how come he can stop at the end of the pitch but he can't stop in the middle of the pitch and like I mean even as a climber I was like Jesus this is let's just leave it to the hands and feet and call it good you know it's like it, it, because it really is esoteric and strange and I had never really forced myself to think about how kind of like weird and arbitrary a free climb really is, especially on El Cap where there's multi-pitch stuff and where you stop and how you're allowed to rest at the anchor, but not in the middle. Of the, I mean, it's like, it's crazy time. And and yeah. it's better maybe just left to that whole old adage of like, if, if you, you know, uh, if you have to ask, you'll never understand kind of thing um, yeah. when it gets to those like nitty gritty parts. Well, and it was, like I say, it was helpful too to have people like Alex and Beth sort of be my, my, uh, my escape hatch and a lot of that you know we can maybe put a little link to something so if you want to know more about what we're talking about here click over here and here's your q a yeah and it's obviously good you didn't call me because i would have been like no you have to make sure they understand that <laughs> what an undercling is <laughs> right <laughs> or whatever right. like <laughs> and, and it's hilarious because people got into it i mean it, People who have no knowledge of climbing, who don't know exactly where Yosemite is or what El Cap is, they maybe have a vague notion from an Ansel Adams you know, poster they've seen in their dentist's office or something. And um, now suddenly they're cheering on these guys. You know, he's got to get through 15. And you're like, you don't yeah. even know who these people are. You don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, it's very strange. It, whenever I'm involved at all, just chronicling a story that, is like a big deal to people. You know, I'm going to the Olympics here in a little bit, and the Olympics are the perfect example of that. So many people don't care a lot about these sports until they happen. And then we'll all sit around on some Thursday night in August cheering on somebody we've never heard of because it's we've got to root this person on. This is the biggest thing in the world. we got to get that gold medal in archery. And you're like, I had no idea we cared about archery so much. Right. I always think of curling as the Olympic sport that everybody notices for a minute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and right. And everybody. You, and I still have no idea what the little brushes do. People, and, yeah. yeah. And that's a great example, actually, because a good friend of mine at the time, Scott Cacciola, was like our curling correspondent. He became like the world's curling ambassador and correspondent for the Olympics last time. 
when the Americans won the gold medal. And he was writing curling every single day, which in past Olympics, we probably wrote one or two stories on curling, but we basically made it a beat and it just kind of steamrolled and people wanted more and more and more curling. And he had the same sorts of issues. Every time I write this curling story the next day, do I need to explain what all these different rules are and things? You just kind of have to sort of feel your way through. Like how much knowledge do we have to try to impart to the reader for them to have an understanding and an appreciation of what it is that, that they're reading here? Peak saturation with the with the uh, Donwell thing, I think probably for me was the Obama picture of him, you know, giving the thumbs up in front of the in, in front of the picture of Yosemite. And like that, honestly, like I'm a big fan of the man, but uh, it gives me goosebumps still like to think that like he was taking a moment, maybe multiple days. He was taking a few minutes to follow what was going on on, on El Cap. I'd like to believe that he did, you know. Yeah. I mean, taking time from running the free world. That's kind of a cool thing. And, you know, just like we were talking about with people watching it at Everest Best Base Camp, you just don't know who's watching and, and where they might be. It's also interesting to just remember a time when the news was much slower, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the last four years of, uh, of, our, of President Trump has been sort of starved the room of oxygen. And like, I, I don't know if the Don Wall story could have broken through amid one scandal or another that was going on in the last four years. So I don't know if you agree with that assessment, but. Yeah, I think you could look at it both ways. Either it wouldn't have broken through or God, we just needed something else to divert our attention. Right. Yeah. So either way. Um, I want to take your temperature on it, uh, on just the media landscape for a second, because if we go back to your story, Snowfall, I recall when that came out and part of the, I mean, it was very well written, of course, but the, part of the big splash that it made was the design was sort of groundbreaking at the time. There's, I'm not quite sure the exact terminology of the, the UX or whatever it, it was, the, the, para, parallax, the parallax. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah it used parallax, which I don't think any, was that the first story that kind of utilized that technology or? It wasn't the first, okay. but it was probably at least the first big one that we okay. did. I think that was percolating and we have seen it in a few other places used to varying degrees. And I think our digital wizards saw an opportunity here to be like, ah, oh, this is where we can really have fun with this. I guess my sense, and I'd love to hear if you agree or if you think of this as I'm going in the wrong direction here, but feels like we've kind of moved past this uh, going goo-goo-eyed about technology on websites and it's getting much more stripped down and people are just much more engaged in just reading content, even with just a very plain blog style format. So I don't know what what you think of that or where you think the that interplay between storytelling and writing and and just kind of media is going from a from a design perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. Snowfall was 2012, I think. Um so in 9 years and I I think people at the time thought, well, this is the future of storytelling. We're going to merge the text and and images and videos and sound all into one sort of immersive experience. And I don't think we've seen that as much as we probably would have thought back in 2012 or 2013. I think what we've seen is that there is still power in just plain text. Um, there's still power in just storytelling in kind of its simplest form. And there's also power and sometimes more power in telling stories through graphics telling them digitally. And so even at the times, and I maybe going a little out of bounds talking about this because it's out of my realm, but it seems that we do some really, really cool interactive graphics that almost take the place of the text. 
as opposed to merging them together, we now sort of say, you know what, this story would be best told visually. Let's tell this story visually. And this story might be best told through words. Let's do that. Our blending of them, which we still do a lot of, I don't think is probably as immersive as I would have guessed seven or eight years ago that it would be. Let's talk about your book. Um, it is called Side Country, and it's a collection of some of uh, your best writing from the Times over the last decade. Um, but is it is it just uh, strictly about these adventure sports, or are there other stories from outside that world as well? Yeah, there are other stories. So these are all stories that have really stuck with me. Um, the editor and the publisher, W.W. Norton, said, let's do a collection of stories. And, uh, and initially, the idea was adventure stories, more, mostly outdoor stories. And so I said, okay. And I came up with a number of them off the top of my head. And when I went back to look at them, I didn't always love them. Or I had forgotten I'd written them, which tells me that, that they didn't just resonate with me, at least. And so I said, can we expand this idea of side country? Can we expand this idea of what an adventure story is? Um, Side country to me being just a little bit outside of the boundaries, right? So about half of these stories are adventure stories. They're things like Dawnwall and Snowfall and stories about hunting alligators, hunting abalone here on the coast of California, hunting um, bighorn sheep, pulling bodies off of Everest is one of them. Um, But the other half are stories that are just... A lot of them kind of quirky about, for example, a, um, a man who bowled a 300 game, a lifetime bowler in a small town in Michigan who bowled his first 300 game of his life at the age of 64 or so uh, on league night. And as he turned around after he rolled the last ball, died of a heart attack. And so I went back there for his funeral or his uh, the celebration of his life a week or two later at the same bowling alley. Just a quick story. Um, one of them is about speed cubing, the solving of Rubik's Cubes, which my son was very involved in. And so it's kind of a personal story. One of them is about the shootings, the mass shootings in Las Vegas, which I covered. And unbeknownst to me, once I got there, I realized that one of the victims was a friend here back home. So they are certainly not adventure stories in the sense of outdoor adventures, but they are stories sort of with a foot inside uh, the sports world, but mostly a little bit out of bounds. If that makes sense, it does yeah, yeah, it's, that's amazing. How did you hear about that uh, the the bowler story? Where did where did you get the tip on that one? Yeah, that was a an editor at the Times who loved bowling. He's from Wisconsin, and so he and I always joked about bowling stories. We're like, let's do a bowling story, and uh, he sent me the little AP blurb that basically had what I just told you: man dies after a three three hundred game. Um, and so I'm like, I think I need to figure out what the guy's story was. Uh, so yeah, just a lot of I'm like kind of chuckling and it making it's making me feel bad. Um cuz like I was like oh he bowled it on league night and then you're like and then he died. I'm like okay, and yeah. now I'm smiling but you know, I'm like what's his name Donnie? But it, I'm like over well, here like, no. laughing and it's making me feel terrible. Uh, is the story like uh full of pathos or is there some yeah, <laughs> some sort it's, of angle um, in it? <laughs> I think it's 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 sad and sweet. And mm, certainly, okay. I think what drags you in is that notion of like, oh my gosh, he died like literally on the bowling alley after he did this. There was there's one story in there that a photographer at the Times had called me and said, I'm going out tomorrow or this weekend to the Meadowlands, to the um, Secaucus, to the convention center where they are holding the big national contest for for competitive dog grooming because you got to take a look at these pictures. Here's some pictures from some other contests. It's wild. And so she sends me these pictures of all these dogs 
shaved, colored in different colors, dogs that look like lions, dogs that look like panda bears. And she's like, do you want to come? And I'm like, if somebody asks you to go to a dog grooming contest, the answer is always yes. And so I went to the dog grooming contest and wrote basically what I thought was going to be a short story that would go with her photos, which I guess was kind of what happened. And, you know, the idea when I got there was like, this is such a weird world. It would be really easy to make fun of it, right? Um, And a lot of these niches, it's kind of easy to poke fun at them from a distance. And then you go there and you realize how earnest people are. Um, you realize, I, I just happened to um, start paying attention to a woman who apparently is the uh, the, the champion, the, the LeBron James of dog grooming. And her work was an ode to her mother who had just passed away. And so that story talks about her and her mother and, her, and it ends with her father crying in the folding chairs uh, when, she, uh, when she is announced as the winner. So to your point, yes, you look at these and maybe what first attracts me is like, this is weird and different. But when you get there, you realize, you know, people who are doing speed cubing, there's a story there. People who are doing yo-yos, which I've done the yo-yo world championships. It's from a distance, like, who are these guys? And then you go there and you're like, oh my gosh, not only is there a raw talent here that maybe should be appreciated, but there's also a sweetness, a, a earnestness to this that... I would feel horrible making fun of. And so I go there and just try to write what I see and what I feel. And um, I think the older I get, the less I am likely to sort of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, isn't this silly? Well, I mean, that's, I, that's like that. the, that's sort of the layman reaction. And that's why you're a journalist and you're good at what you do um, is, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to poke fun. I mean, the internet is what it's for and, you know, and poke fun in a mean way is even more what it's for, but it's, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think that's your talent and, and to, to realize, you know, going in there that there is this, again, like there, a story needs the pathos. It needs that kind of thing as well. And, um, you know, the onion does the other kind, although not maybe specifically to any sort of person, but but um, yeah, I mean, just it's a testament to the talent and, and to, to what your skill is as a journalist. Well, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's some sort of great world urgency to dog grooming, for example. Um, but um, my, my role, as I see it, not only is to sort of satisfy my own um, curiosity, selfishly, but hopefully to bring people into worlds that they are unfamiliar with, that they maybe would never seek. Um, I always think of like the New Yorker, which does a great job of writing stories without really telling you what you're about to get into. And then at the end, you just realize you spent 30 minutes reading a story about beekeeping or something. And you think, oh, that was fascinating. I love that kind of dare. Like, can I get people to read a story about dog grooming? Can I get people to read a story about speed cubing? Um, And I hope that people, if they stick with it or give it a few paragraphs, they'll start to see like, okay, there's something actually here. It's not just that quick little quip um, that I might've thought at first. One question I have about uh, writing about adventure sports is that oftentimes the stories that seem to attract the most attention and be most compelling in in the minds of editors involve death. And there's a certain kind of ambulance chasing mentality that I'm personally uncomfortable with, but have uh, certainly leveraged to my own benefit in terms of my writing career. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, on that aspect of it or what your, if you have an ethical stance or, or what your, what your take is on just the, the death and how to talk about death in, in these sports. 
Yeah, it's tricky. I I think um, there's always the first reaction like, oh my gosh, somebody died doing blank and we should write about it. And, you know, I've covered a lot of avalanches, for example. My general thought is if we can pause and step back and do this more as a trend piece, you know, if we, not not that I want to avoid the breaking news, but if there's a way to to step back and be a little bit more thoughtful and and not get sucked down the hole of, trying to break the news and maybe getting things wrong or maybe hitting the wrong notes about this person's life or what happened to them. So let's step back. And that was certainly the case with like Snowfall. I mean, Snowfall came out six months after the avalanche happened. But, you know, the the tricky part of this is sometimes those people, because of their previous accomplishments or maybe because of the circumstances of, of what happens to them, something needs to be written right away. And that's the tough gauge. Is, is this person, and I don't want me to say it this way, but is this person worthy of writing a new story about them, about what happened? You know, this came up with Brad Gobright uh, when he died. And I had just met him, actually, at, a couple months before that. And other than that, I probably wouldn't have been real familiar with him. It would have been a little bit off my radar. But when I saw that he had died, I thought, he's a pretty big deal in the climbing world. You know, I maybe didn't appreciate it even just four months ago, but I think I appreciate it now. He's somebody we should probably write about. But we're always trying to gauge, like, is this person worthy of an obituary or of a news story? Or is this just a freak thing that looks like we're just trying to get some clicks? And, um, yeah, I always wince a little bit when I see stories that we're doing, you know, off breaking news where I think that looks like we're trying to get some clicks. It's just because it's such a weird story or something. So it's it's a tr- tough one. I'd rather step back, and that's kind of my forte is stepping back and let's let's sort of let this all sink in about what it is that we that we're that we're writing about and what we what the experience was there. Fortunately, we can always blame editors for any gaffes in that department. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it came up too when I wrote about um, Dean Potter's accident. Yeah, yeah and I don't even remember if I wrote that next day when he died or if I wrote the obituary or not, which is weird that I don't remember that. But then I went back a few weeks later and, and wrote about him. Yeah, that's more my wheelhouse. Is I think we can all sort of let these things sink in and then we can sort of put them in broader context with a little bit of clarity, a little bit of distance. You know, we've noted how like the, the sort of core climbing audience is not always appreciative when I guess folks from sort of, <laughs> if we want to use that mainstream, come in and... Yep you know, reveal the secrets of the hand and feet climbing and all those sorts of things. And when I've, you know, when I was reading the the Dean Potter article, thinking about that person in particular, I mean, he in some ways is like the closest thing we have in sort of modern climbing to sort of a sacred figure. He was polarizing in a lot of ways, but he had, he definitely had a cult around him as well, as well as some very, very deep friends who would want to dis- sort of defend his reputation, uh, I think because it was sort of bumpy in climbing here and there with his sponsors and things like that. I mean, how did you sort of step into that? And, and was there any sort of like, who's this guy uh, coming from the folks that, that you talked to about Dean's death? Yeah, um, certainly knew of sort of Dean's place in the world and probably knew I'd hear it from both sides. And so what I do with that story and what I do with a lot of stories is just try to keep it narrowly focused. You know, I'm not trying to write the big book on him just as much as I can what happened. And really that story is through the eyes of Jen rap and the experience of that night and, or that day and that night. And so, you know, as a journalist, you just learn, just write what you know. And that way you're, you're just writing truth. And if you leave things out, that's okay. It's better than trying to, 
you know, um, get philosophical about things. Um, I think it's just easier sometimes just to kind of go narrow. And and Dean was somebody who we had written about before. We'd written about his slacklining. So he was no real stranger to the times, at least in terms of, oh, it's that guy? But I didn't want to write, and I, and I say this a lot, I didn't want to write the Wikipedia entry on him. I didn't, you know, I wanted this to be, in, in most of my stories, I want them to be sort of narrowly focused. And it sort of allows me to escape some of that, that people then can't criticize, well, why'd you quote this person, not this person? Why'd you talk about that, but you didn't talk about this? It's like, no, it's, the story's just about this one single thing. I'm, I'm, not, the, I'm not writing the encyclopedia here. Yeah, when it's it's interesting because I think there's you know there's sort of a compelling reason that we as climbers get defensive about about it as well as probably base jumpers and kayakers and and backcountry skiers, which you know we're sort of used to this risk factor and we're and we're used to the you know what happens from the risk fac- factor, not numb to it. We're we're aware and and ready for it, and you know the when it it gets out into that world, you know to read you know the inevitable instant criticism of like. Well, those people are stupid and you know the, the, why were they up there and why did he was he free soloing and why was he you know jumping off a cliff is just stupid and you know what i mean so it's like i i understand like a defensiveness when it gets out into that world because we then we also want to jump in and try to explain well it's not just about risk taking and you know then we get caught into those weeds i think in our heads of like how do we you know how do we get it across to those folks that this was not the adrenaline push or whatever. And and I think we appreciate when a a journalist, whether it's you or anyone else, can at least step to the line of trying to explain that or explain away like the the sort of off the cuff criticism of everybody being crazy, you know, and, and almost, you know, deserving what they got can be a, a vibe that that comes across sometimes, not in the stories, but in sort of the reaction to the stories. And I see that in comments, although I have a rule that I don't read comments, but I know that people say that about some of these stories where people say, what are these people doing? They're crazy. It's a death wish, whatever. The stories I write, and it's strange to link these things together, but when you're talking about dog grooming, you're talking about climbing, I'm not the judge here. I'm just here to tell people who these people are and what they're doing. I'm not putting any sense of judgment as much as best I can. I'm just trying to be like the eyes and ears of who this person is and what happened to them. And... I try not to get wrapped up in what people are going to think about that or how people are going to judge them. That's not that's not my role. It's it sounds like a little bit like a cop out, but I, I I really truly if I as long as I'm being truthful and honest about who the person is and not trying to impart any sort of judgment on what it is they're doing or the ethics of what they're doing or the you know the relative craziness of what they're doing, I'm just telling you what they're doing. You decide. I mean, you're the readers. We have smart readers. And they'll they'll figure it out and they'll they'll debate it themselves. And so I, I basically, you know, sometimes light the match and walk away and let everybody else deal with that. I was just wondering if you've gone through um, the last few years, you know, picking and choosing what you write about spe- specifically in the climbing world. Has there been a story that that you think maybe you missed the ball on that you you know unfolded in a way you were like, gosh, I wish I had written about that there's there's a lot going on there yeah i mean to your guys's question about like when we write things quickly or kind of judge on the spot whether it's a big deal i remember when i heard about emily harrington just a few months ago i thought well she's the first woman but it's been done a couple times how big a deal is this and my instinct and i forget what i was doing at the time but i didn't jump on that story and our news desk back in new york jumped on it and 
I know it got a zillion, zillion clicks. It became a huge thing, and I probably poo-pooed it um, as, oh, yeah, that's that's nice. Maybe we can go back and do some on Emily later. Um, so my breaking nuisance was not really good on that one. And that happens. And again, you know, as we were talking about before, that's that's one of those things where I probably needed to lean on somebody right away and say, is this a big deal? Is this a big deal? Because my, my antenna was was improperly, improperly aligned on that one. Have you ever heard of Jordan Cannon? <laughs> I I. <laughs> I have actually. I have written a lot of stories about coming out. So, um, so yeah. No, we have a we have a running joke that poor Jordan also freed the the Golden Gate in a day. Like what? Like three or four days later, and nobody yes. cares. Right. Well, and, and actually, and that, that part of my point is that I, I think I texted that to one of the editors, right. going, "See, like, how do you know?" And I think right. <laughs> I think maybe it's especially after Don Wall, but I think I'm a little gun shy because I don't want to write something that people are like, really, you thought that was a good story, and then have it, you know, erased the next day. I'm not a big fan of writing stories about like records. The speed thing is sort of a little waffly to me because it's going to be broken. Do I really care how fast somebody does it? I think there's a lot of complexities that story that I'm probably not smart enough to to write offhand that I have to, have to really investigate. And so I don't love speed things. I don't love stories when somebody comes to me and says, hey, did you see the youngest person ever to uh, sail to Hawaii? And I'm like, really? Okay. The youngest person ever to climb all seven you know, um, of the biggest mountains on seven continents? They're the oldest person or the first of this, the last, you know, whatever. Uh, th- those things don't thrill me. And so I'd rather How many back. Seven Summits pitches do you get in a day, would you say? <laughs> uh, not as many as I used to. I think I've batted them all back. Again, it's like, let me know when you're finished and maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk. Yeah, easy for me to say. Like, I can't imagine doing one. So who am I to be like, oh, get out of here. I mean, I, I, it's, it's all awesome, but... I guess I'm I'm in the fortunate position where I can be a little choosy with some stories. So, have there um, been any stories from the climbing world that you've written that have maybe influenced you personally or changed how you think about how you approach life or risk or something like that? Probably the one that sticks with me the most is what I wrote about bringing the bodies of Indian climbers off of Everest. We called it a deliverance from twenty-seven thousand feet. You know, Everest has such a mythical place in our in our uh, society, and it's easy to kind of get caught up again in the sensationalistic side of it. Of the look at the conga lines going up, look at you know the people, the crowds. I'm sure the Times will probably be running stories or or photos from the next couple of weeks about some of these things. But to go to India and spend time in Calcutta with the families who are trying to figure out where on the mountain their loved ones are. And whether they're actually still dead, there was still some belief that maybe somehow a year later they might just show up and walk in the door, I think brings humanity to like this big kind of story. You know, Everest is one big thing, but if you can bring it down to like the lowest common denominator, which is individual people, that sticks with me. And I think the lesson that I, I take from that is like no story is too small. Everybody has a story. So sometimes the best thing to do to, you know, illuminate a large story, like a story like Everest, is to go to the streets of Calcutta and find the families that are deeply and emotionally invested in in Everest. You know, this isn't is just something that we click through to look at cool pictures or to, to mock the crowds or to mock why would anybody want to do that? Um, we're so over Everest. There's still people in the world that dream of this, and here are a couple of them that lost their lives doing it. Um, again, not judging them at all, just 
this is the reality of the world in some little corners of the world. And if I can find my way into those corners, I think it's more meaningful to me and I hope it's more meaningful to the readers. Did you know that the runout is entirely listener supported? The hosting, the equipment, and our time is entirely paid for by you. Well, a few of you anyway. So if you too want to pay for one of those squishy things on the end of a microphone or whatever else, go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. And you'll also be treated to coruscating bonus material like our recent discussion of the petroglyph bolt tragedy and the absolute knucklehead who screwed us all by doing it. This is a huge blow that will come back to haunt us when land managers get on a horse about banning bolting. Right. I guarantee this will be in a fucking PowerPoint at some, you know, For BLM sure. office meeting about banning bolts. Yes. It's it's now in the ether and it's just like we have to self-regulate or it's going to be taken away from us over well, and over and over again. I feel like the cat's out of the bag in some ways. Like, I, I, I just don't know. You know, it's kind of like this thing where the sport has grown so much that the population is a little out of control. Mm -hmm. And if you if you were to try to, like, analyze what could have been done differently in the last 15 years that this guy is, has been climbing to have prevented this tragedy. I'm not sure what that would be necessarily because regardless of how good the efforts are that you put forth with your educational efforts or whatever it is, just by virtue of the fact that there's so many people climbing now, there's inevitably going to be the fringe weirdo who decides that this five, three slab with petroglyphs all over it needs bolts in it. Yeah. You know? I, like that's just like part of the, like the fallout from a growing sport. So once again, go to patreon.com slash runout podcast and become a rope gun now. Today's final bit is brought to us by Dylan Taylor. Dylan is the man behind the Climberisms account on Instagram, which is, uh, well, you should just go check it out at Climberisms and enjoy this visit via Dylan from Adam Andra. Hello, my name is Dylan. I do the funny shit on the Instagram uh, Climberisms account. Um, at least some people think I'm funny, so that's cool. Um, here is an impression of Adam Andra. <coughs> <coughs> Chris and Andrew, what the fuck is up? I am really, really happy you guys are having me on the show right now. I just got done bettering. I sent my project today. So I'm really, really um happy. And um I'm really excited to be on the show because um I thought this would be a really good opportunity to come out and talk some shit on Daniel Woods. Um, Daniel, I hope you're listening. But um I really didn't like that Daniel did return of the sleepwalker and graded it V seventeen. And now everyone thinks he's stronger than me, but he's not because I'm fucking out of Mondra. So I really, um, I, today I bought a ticket to Las Vegas just for one day and one day only because, um, I'm really, really going to Donwall Daniel's ass. I'm going to flash return of the sleepwalker and then I'm going to downgrade it to V10. And, um, then I'm going to get a rental car, drive to Colorado. I'm going to drive there just because I would like to see some good scenery in the U.S. 
and I'm going to knock on Daniel's door. And um, he's going to answer the door. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to uh, laugh in his face. And then I'm going to get a plane ticket back to the check and uh, return home. And then I'm probably going to delete my social media account. I'm going to disappear from the climbing world and stop bettering and sport climbing altogether because I will officially have done everything. And I will officially um, claim myself as the fucking best. And um, then I'm probably going to just focus on figuring out some math equations that uh, the world hasn't figured out yet. Um, don't you forget, I'm, I'm really, really, um, I'm fucking out of Mondra. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Rope gun.